calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. This week, the Down and Nerdy Podcast is brought to you by Claritin D. And shout out to the folks at Claritin who not just sponsored the show, but also provided some samples as well. Tis the season to breathe pollen. Yeah, I've been spending a lot more time outside. Yeah, I can tell those allergies are definitely acting up. I feel stuffy. I feel sluggish. The eyes are starting to water a little bit more. That's why I'm turning to Claritin D. Look, it's definitely helped me relieve my symptoms. It seems to work really, really fast for me as well. It's designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongestion in your nose so you can breathe better. And hey, I'm noticing a lot of that right now. As a matter of fact, I'm looking forward to be able to enjoy much more outdoor time this spring and summer. A lot of that has to do with Claritin D. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Did to remind you that market value can be a very spooky thing. It's episode 376 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. I'm really excited because I've got so many great guests on the show this week, starting with the new series from Sci-Fi Surrealistic. Going to be joined by stars Tim Rozon and Sarah Levy to talk about this very interesting show about real estate agents trying to sell the toughest houses on the market. And that's just putting it mildly. I'll also give, me, give you my first impressions of the first episode as well. Also going to be joined by the stars and the creative team behind Power Book 3, Raising Kane in the prequel series, which is coming to stars. This Sunday, I'm so, so excited to get to share with you what the cast had to say about this upcoming series, which is really, really good, by the way, too. Also, yeah, you know I'm going to have a spoiler-filled review of the Loki Season 1 finale. So much went down, and we can finally talk spoilers safely. Our comic book reviews are back, some great nerd news to talk about. So things, since things are so jam-packed, let's get right to it. Tim Rozon and Sarah Levy from Surreal Estate join me next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Tim Rozon from Winona Earth on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. When you're trying to sell your house and you've got bigger problems than not having granite countertops and only having one bathroom. I mean, what if you had ghosts in your house, right? That might be a problem unless you had the Roman agency nearby. And that comes from Surreal Estate, a brand new series on sci-fi, which is now here. As a matter of fact, I got a chance to chat with the stars of the show, Tim Rozon and Sarah Levy, 
about the roles. Myself and some fellow journalists got to ask a couple questions. Here's what I wanted to know, starting with Tim. Tim, for you, I think that Luke Roman's right up there with one of my favorite characters that you've ever played. I mean, he's likable, but he's a complex dude. What's your favorite thing about him? Pretty much that, you know, he's not who I think everybody's going to think he is for the first couple of episodes. I think the layers will start to come off and there'll be a sensitivity to him. To be honest, a vulnerability to him that I really like, uh, that you don't see at all. I think with a lot of it is hidden by his bravado, which he uses to be a real estate agent. You know, I think he's honed that talent and skill over the years. But I think when we when we start to see the real Luke, there's a vulnerability to him that I like a lot. And Sarah, for you, one of my favorite things about this show is the dynamic between Susan and Luke. I, I really love the chemistry between you and Tim on the show. So how, describe that dynamic for us a little bit. What, what, is, what is something that really draws you to that? I think just the fact that they're in it for the kind of greater good of the company, which is to sell houses. And we both know where our skills lie. And the fact that we kind of put our heads together and, and our skills together to, to be as professional as possible in, you know, getting the job done and selling these houses. And I kind of liked that we both went in, in this very like wonderfully platonic friendship, true friendship, where we both very much respect each other. And, and that made it really, you know, easy and fun to play. Also, you know, Tim is wonderful and lovely. And the fact that we have, have had a relationship outside, a platonic relationship outside of this show. <laughs> I'll clarify that, you know, we've known each other for so long. So it was really nice to be able to bring that element into it as well. And you're both hilarious. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. So one of the other questions I thought was really, really good from one of the other journalists was, what are your character's best and worst qualities? This was a toughie. Listen to what they had to say. I feel like his best and worst qualities are so connected and they kind of make him a good real estate agent. You know, it's kind of, I guess it's, I'll, I'll go back to this bravado thing. I think he needs to act a certain way when he's selling houses or when he's in full on sales pitch mode. And I think that's his worst quality to me, but also it's one of his strongest <laughs> uh, traits because he needs that to, to be successful. But I think the cool thing is we start to peel that stuff away uh, and see the cool stuff. And then we see that within the dynamic between Susan and, and Luke. And I think it's within the comfort he feels with someone he respects as much for selling houses in that sense that he can also be his realist Luke. I don't think the other people at the agency uh, really see a version of Luke that Susan does. And I think that's because of the comfort he feels and the, the mutual respect they have for one another. Yeah, I, I completely agree in that, you know, some of Susan's best qualities are her worst qualities, depending on, you know, the environment and the situation that she's in. But I mean, I think that, you know, she's her, her professionalism, she's a people person, a workaholic, and though that works really, really well professionally, it doesn't necessarily work really well personally. So it's, it's been finding her finding that balance and allowing herself to be vulnerable and letting people in on kind of the secrets that she keeps and why she, you know, puts her nose to the ground and, and just wants to, you know, close the deal and make that money. It's, it's interesting that, you know, just like Tim said, he hit the nail on the head in that, like the best qualities are so closely tied to the worst qualities. It just kind of depends on the situation. I'll say this. I've gotten a chance to see the first few episodes 
of surreal estate. And if you've been complaining that there's nothing unique left on television, there's no unique ideas. Surreal estate, and I'm not even kidding, might be one of the most unique shows that's come along in a long, long time. You look at it on the surface and you're thinking a real estate agency that tries to sell haunted houses, for lack of a better way of putting that's really simplifying it. Trust me, there's much more to it than that. Plus, there's a lot of depth in these characters, too, especially when it comes to Tim and Sarah's characters. This is an interesting reveal about Sarah's character in the first episode, actually, as you'll find out. And it just the layers continue to peel from there on out. And there's also a continuing storyline with one particular house that's going to be a theme throughout the season. Plus, there's there's just other houses they try to sell as well. There's a great supporting cast. I mean, Adam Corson is really, really good. Maurice Dean Wint is very, very good as well. And that's that's not where it stops. And not to mention Melanie Scrofano, who Tim worked with on Winona Earp, is going to direct a couple of episodes. She's even going to appear in one. So there's so much to love, I feel like, about Surreal Estate. It's one of those shows that I don't feel like it's been talked about enough up to this point. And this is one of those times where you need to watch this show and you need to spread the word. Surreal Estate premieres tonight. That's a Friday at 10 o'clock Eastern Time on Sci-Fi and every Friday after that. I think you'll love the concept of this show. I think you'll love how quick-witted it is. I think you'll love how funny that it can be at times as well. And I just think you really love the character of Luke Roman in general because I certainly did. Now, maybe it's because I'm an unapologetic Tim Roseon fan. Might be because of that a little bit, but I'm telling you, there's something about this show and these characters that just there's a spark to the show. And there's a light in this show that I think is so unique that we don't really see enough on TV. So I'm really, really excited for you guys to check this one out. That's going to do it for my kind of quick review of the first episode of Surreal Estate from Sci-Fi Spoiler Free. And again, thanks to Tim Rose on and Sarah Levy for joining me. Up next, of course you know, I'm going to be talking about the season finale of Loki. We'll get into that next. Plenty of spoilers too, so be aware. It's up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Tara Strong, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. After all the prostering and pruning, how would it all end? That's right, the season finale, and I say that, and we'll get to that in a second as to why I'm not saying series finale, of Loki has aired on Disney+. Plus. A lot of spoilers to talk about from here on out, so just be aware of that. It's been out for a couple days now. I've given you a warning. I think it's safe to talk spoilers. And, and let's just jump right in. To the biggest one, right? Jonathan Majors debuts not as Kang, but as he who remains. I mean, but let's just call it spade a spade, right? That we are talking about Kang here. And he was just full of energy and just I, there's a quirkiness about him that I really, really loved and played so well off of Loki and Sylvie, too, by the way. And it, and it was one of those deals where, you know, he's like, just like the TVA has been saying, from the beginning, like we know, I know what's going to happen. I know how this is going to end. So you can either kind of take my deal or you can kill me. And a whole bunch of me that might not be so great are just going to be floating all over. And this timeline is going to go berserk. So what this leads to is, and, and whether you've been shipping it or not, you know, this, this led to a conflict between Sylvie and, and Loki that I think really, and I'll get back to, to Jonathan Majors and, and the whole Kang thing here a little bit later, but I loved the conflict between Loki and Sylvie in this thing because, you know, they'd kind of fallen 
for each other. It was this unlikely pairing, right? And it led to the conflict of, you know, Loki believes he who remains and saying, you know, this might not be a good idea killing this dude. And Sylvie is so locked on focused that, you know, these people have taken everything from me. And the only way that I can exact my revenge and get satisfaction is by killing this guy. So they end up fighting each other. And in that moment where you finally think they're going to be together, she kicks him through that portal. Right. And I thought the best scene in this entire series, and don't at me on this because I thought it just spoke volumes, okay, was when Loki is sitting there in the TVA by himself. And there's just this defeated, heartbroken look to him. And bravo to Tom Hiddleston for this, by the way, because you look and this was talked about ad nauseum when it came to Loki, right, is that he's a survivor but he's always a loser sort of thing, right? And this seemed like the ultimate loss for Loki. Not only did he not get a throne, not only did he not get the woman that he wanted to be with, not only did he get a happy ending, but he now sits alone and broken again and and at a loss once again. It was just crushing. For me to see that I thought it was just the quintessential scene of this entire series. And then fast forward to the fact that now not even Mobius knows who he is at this point. Right. So now he's lost a, you know, for lack of a better term, a best friend or a confidant, whatever you want to call the relationship between Loki and Mobius. Now he's lost that, too. So now he's got nothing. Now, who was behind that? That's, you know, kind of a to be determined kind of thing is that he who remains slash Kang is it Sylvie who is responsible for what happens to Loki and and would it be considered a bad thing is this a way for him to possibly get a fresh start but you know Loki's not just going to let this go right so I thought that was an amazing scene that happened in in in, in the series at the end there and, and again from from Sylvie's perspective I love that that you had he who remains tells her you know grow up you know, and, and you know, almost like an it's not always about you sort of thing. And, you know, maybe he was lying, right? Maybe Sylvie's right. Maybe he was lying, but it turns out he wasn't lying, right? But you, you could understand why she would think that. But at the same time, much like, you know, Loki in the past, making it about her kind of has opened up a big, big can of worms. And open up the multiverse for us, which, you know, for us as fans, that's not the worst thing in the world, right? It, it, it kind of makes it more fun for us, but at the same time, it makes it more dangerous for everyone else involved in this universe now, right? And in the Marvel Cinematic Universe as a whole. And the fact that she's the one responsible for it. Now, remember, we thought that it was going to be Wanda, right? When we were watching WandaVision, we thought it was going to be Wanda that was responsible for unleashing this ma- massive thing on on the on the world and it's not at all it turns out it was sylvie that was the one that was responsible for this and you know her end game is now her end game is now done right she 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 killed the person that she set out to kill but oftentimes you find out that your end game isn't exactly the end game because there was a lot more to it than you expected right and then that kind of an ending is rarely satisfying for that character right that's very rarely a cathartic thing so 
I thought that that was an interesting angle that was played there too. And we don't know where things settle for her, right? There's this fine. There's a little bit of a finality there for her, and then she kind of looks around like, well, now what? Sort of thing. And she, I don't even think she realizes the gravity of what she's done, whether it be to he who remains or to Loki. So I think that her angle is an interesting one. And can I give a shout out to Miss Minutes too, by the way, and Tara Strong, the amazing job she did as the voice of Miss Minutes. How much of a little sneaky little thing was was she in this series, right? You know, you think she's fun and innocent at first, and it turns out that Miss Minutes has had her little animated hands and everything, whether it be the whether it be the hour hand or the minute hand, it's been in absolutely everything. And I don't think that we've seen the last of Miss Minutes either, quite frankly, because I think that she might be a little bit more important than we even realize as well. It's almost like you think it's going to be a fun throwaway character, but at the same time, you find out that there's much more to Miss Minutes than that, almost like the minion for Kang at a certain in a certain respect, right? And where the TVA goes from here too, right? Now they they not only do they still exist, they the the timekeepers you saw the statue were replaced now by by Kang. So what's the story there? And Mobius is now kind of the de facto head of the TVA. It seems like right because everybody else is either taken off or they are the the, the guards themselves that were left behind after B-20 kind of blows up the whole illusion of the TVA for the guards, right? Which was very, very cool too, by the way, which is another great scene. And just when you think that's where it all ends, we find out in the credit scene that Loki is going to return for a second season. So, and I got to say for this whole series, there was not one episode where I went, eh, and this was and now granted only six episodes, and I'm not saying if they had an extra couple that any of them would have been bad, but I'm just I'm just saying that every episode brought it and brought something different to the table, and actually more important than anything else, made you want to be made you want to stay up to watch the next episode the following week so you could avoid spoilers, right? It was it was appointment viewing, and that's not something that really happens a ton anymore whether it be on streaming or on broadcast television so this series was not only a home run in that respect but the fact that this was the catalyst for what is now going to be going forward for the marvel cinematic universe and marvel studios think how this affects doctor doctor strange and the multiverse of madness think about how this affects spider-man no way home things about think about how this affects Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. This affects so many things now that it's 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 insane. So to the the fact that this series was trusted to be the catalyst for what's next for the Marvel Cinematic Universe tells you all you need to know about how seriously Marvel is taking this whole Disney Plus thing. So I think for me, neck and neck is to my favorite between WandaVision and Loki, but this puts Falcon and the Winter Soldier at a distant third for me. I'm sorry. And I didn't even dislike it. You know I enjoyed the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. But just as good as Loki was every week and the way that when they introduced characters made them matter so much. And the fact that, you know, you kind of left fans with nothing to complain about, right? Because this was the theory, right? That it was going to be Kang all along instead of Agatha all along this time. Right. So this time it was Kang. You got exactly what you wanted in a major debut in a Marvel series 
So you kind of left fans with no reason to go, oh, well, such and such didn't show up, or this didn't happen, or this should have happened. Everything that should have happened, happened in this series, and then some. And now it also gives us a ton of other stuff to look forward to. So Loki not only ended up being one of the best Marvel series ever, but it also ended up being a big match lit for what's going to be going forward. And I can't wait to find out how that's going to turn out. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of the Loki Loki Season 1 finale. Up next, going to talk to the cast and creators and showrunners of Power Book 3, Raising Kanan, which is going to be premiering on Stars. Talk to them next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is writer Brandon Easton, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Sometimes you just got to go back and find out how you got the power. If you are a fan of the Stars series Power and some of those spinoffs, we finally got the prequel that I think fans have always wanted, and that is Power Book 3, Raising Kanan. So we get to find out how Kanan became who he ultimately was and find out that there's a queen pin behind it all. And I had a chance to talk to some so many members of this incredible cast and some of the creators and showrunner of the series as well. I actually want to start with the star himself, Makai Curtis. Here's what I got a chance to ask him about his role in the series. Makai, how you doing? I mean, the first couple episodes were really, really good, man. Kanan's a smart kid. He seems to have a lot of friends. He's got a good energy about him. What At this point in his life, what would you say drives him the most? Yeah, what would I say drives Kanan at this age? Honestly, it's definitely his family. It's definitely his mother. You know, those are the two biggest things in his world. You know, inside of, inside of the stories, you know, it's a story about influence and environment and being on the south side of Jamaica, Queens in kind of, you know, like the, the most drug-ridden part because his mother is a drug queenpin, being his influence along with his Uncle Marvin and his Uncle Lulu you know, those are the those are the kind of things you see him around and, uh, you know, the, the choices he has to make. So one of the things I love, Makai, about these first couple episodes is Kanan's relationship with Jukebox. I mean, it's his cousin, but it's really like his sister. Right. So mm. what it, what is that relationship like for you? How cool was that to play? It was really cool, you know, especially getting to, you know, because that's the one relationship from the as a fan of power, that's the one relationship from, you know, power that carries over any sort of, you know, polarity i guess you could say but yeah it's been really cool getting to unpack that whole that whole relationship and getting to dive even further in the you know stuff that was happening even before we were the age we are now on the show um, there's a lot of you know sasha's done a great job of building backstories and you know sitting down with us and, and just brainstorming little stuff that will actually inform you know, the, the tone and the place that you're in with the character now. It's, it's been it's been really fun getting to, uh, to to explore that relationship, especially in the place that it's in now. Because, again, you know, it's a totally different spot from where they were 
however many years in the future the original power is. So yeah, you know, that's another one I'm just really excited to explore the evolution of the relationship and, and you know, how it grows. Makai, a lot of teenagers like to think that they make their own decisions, right? Or that they can make their own decisions. Do you feel like Kanan kind of has that illusion of, for lack of a better word, power? Or does he kind of know what's up in his family? I feel like it's both of those, honestly. You know, there's there's the side of it that, again, knows that she is the head of it all. And, you know, she kind of is. She She's the boss. She's the be all that ends all in. Again, going back to it being the, the family dynamic and, you know, he wants he wants to get in to protect her and, you know, do all of this stuff. And because, again, he thinks that's what's right with all the people that are around him. So, it, it you know, it eventually, I'm sure with anything, turns into, you know, you eventually get tired of hearing no. So you, you find your own way in type thing. And that's kind of what happens here. It's he knows that she's not going to do it the way he wants it done, no matter. I mean. He's been spoiled his entire life, but this is one thing she's not budging on. And, you know, Kanan being a thinker, being his mother's son, being, you know, somebody who who actually is very smart, not so much street smart just yet, but who is actually intelligent. You know, he has ways to think out of a lot of situations, and that's what you'll find him doing. <laughs> Up next is the woman that was responsible for creating the character of Kanan and some of the others as well, an executive producer, Courtney Kemp, who talked about what we can expect from some of those characters coming up in this season of Power Book 3. Here's what I had a chance to ask her. Courtney, so great to speak with you today. We saw in the trailer when this show first kicked off, it's the line, I want to make sure I get this right, you know how my story ends, this is how it starts. So how important was it to tell Kanan's early story and how it relates to his future? Well, you know, a lot of our fans were asking for a prequel with Ghost and Tommy, which I thought was really not as interesting because you know both those characters live. So there wasn't a lot of story to tell there. But what I did think was interesting is that Kanan, who is five years older than Tommy and Ghost, does have a story that's very specific to this, what 50 calls the golden era of selling drugs and does have a story that we don't really know about. We know how he ended, but I, I like to think of him as like the monster with a heart of gold. And it's kind of nice to see how he ended up that way. Everybody likes to think that they run the streets, right? Whether it be the law enforcement or whatever family might be going on. I know that this series is a lot about family, but how much are we also going to see about the hierarchy about what's going on and who actually runs these streets? I think who runs the streets is a great question. My answer is not going to be one that's popular, but the reality is, is, is that a higher power is always in control. So everybody's always jockeying for like, I, I control this or I control that. And the corners belong to God. They don't belong to Unique or to Rock. So it's really interesting to see that go back and forth. Obviously the cops are in the mix, but if we could control other people and get them to do what we could do, then like, that would be amazing, right? The closest I come is going interior, Rock's house. Rock says this, right? And I don't <laughs> even do that, that's really Sasha. So at the end of the day, it's like, you know, people are trying to be in control. That's what I love about power is that it's an illusion. None of us have any. So speaking of who runs the streets, is it Rock and her family? Let's talk to the family members themselves. you got London Brown, who plays Marvin. You've got Malcolm Mays, who plays Lulu, and Haley Kilgore, who plays Jukebox. Let's find out what they had to say about where they all stand in the family. Now, everybody, all obviously this is a prequel series, so I think this is the best place to start. How would you describe your character's place within this family dynamic? Because I feel like everybody's got a unique role there. 
always say that Jukebox is the eyes and ears of the family. She's she's always working from the outside in and she's always coming in with the correct information <laughs> the first time. So yeah, I just say she's the eyes and ears of the family. I am upper management. I keep everybody in line. I'm clean up. I'm sanitation. That's my job. He fucks up. I clean it up. They get out of line. I go get them. That's my job. That's all I do. I love it. I think for me, I'm a little bit of the muscle of the group. I have a hard time following directions, but ultimately I'm just there to have everyone's back. And, and Lulu's character is there to clean up the back <laughs> that I do. And literally because you're always eating too, so there's that. Boom. <laughs> All right, Haley, this one's for you. I'm going to try and word this just right because we're trying not to spoil anything here. But we get a pretty big reveal about Jukebox in the first episode about her personal life. So, again, without spoiling anything, how much do you think this is going to complicate her story this season, especially given the fact that we're, we're in the early 90s here? We're not here today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you I think you kind of answered the question. It's that it's it's the 90s and it it's it is a very tough situation. I don't think it's impossible. I think that there is always a way to navigate. It's just like that's the cool part about her being a teenager, right? Is as teenagers, you're just trying to figure everything out and figure out where you belong in the world, where you're going, where you want to go. So, I think as much as it's a shocker and it's revealed, I think she, she'll she figure it out. All righty, really quickly, how consciously aware are your characters of how much influence they actually have over Kanan at such a young age? And actually, Haley, for you as well, even though you're around the same age. I mean, Jukebox will boss Kanan around whenever she gets the opportunity, so. Yeah, I, I'm less, I guess for me, I'm kind of hyper aware of how much influence we have over Kanan simply because I think I was his first prototype with his mother. She's the older sister and I was the baby of the of our trio and of our family before Kanan was born and before of course Jukebox was born. So I'm hyper aware, which is why I take such an interest in Haley and de facto later on in Kanan simply because I'm like, I know how I turned out. I know how Marvin turned out. And I know that that, I don't want that for them. So I think me moving into a different arena is a display of how aware I am of how this, we need a better route for, for the family. So I think Lulu's probably the most aware of how these things are going to turn out in the end outside of the audience who's already watched. I, I think Marvin is the total opposite of Lulu in that regard where he's not looking so much into Kanan's future, but he in fact like introduces Kanan to a lot of different things that may not be quite the best direction for, for his future. Speaking of that family, how could I not talk to the wonderful Bettina Miller who plays Rock on the show? And then there's Omar Epps who plays Detective Howard on the show. So you know there's going to be some friction there. Here's what I get a chance to ask them. Patina Omar, thanks so much for taking the time today. Really appreciate it. I'm going to start with you, Patina, because Rock clearly loves her son. She loves her family, even though they can be knuckleheads sometimes. How much does that bond help drive the family's success but also their ability to survive. Obviously, I think it helps drive the family success for sure. Rock is the matriarch of her family. She's the sole breadwinner for her family. She loves them more than anything. Family first before anything for her, but also, you know, her son is her Achilles heel as well. And that starts to become a problem because her two worlds that she's been able to sort of keep separate 
up until this point have been able to exist and she's been able to go between the two and be successful at it. And so now that Kanan has put himself into a situation to where he is now curious about what his mother does and it's it presents a problem, it's more dangerous to have to think about people coming after her. Now she has to think about someone possibly coming after her son and you know the lengths that she will go to to keep him protected and to keep her family safe it's pretty major. So, you know, Rock Rock is dealing with a lot of stuff. I asked Courtney about this earlier. I'm really curious to get both of your perspectives on this because I feel like, again, this show is about family, but it's also about like who runs the streets. So from both of your characters' perspectives, do they feel like maybe they run the streets or do they feel like they have to run the streets in their situation? <laughs> it's not she has to run the street. She's running the street. You know, Rock <laughs> has had these, uh, period, right? Uh, she's She's been in two really long relationships with hustlers, with these men put up on these, these pedestals. And she's sort of been the mastermind in behind the scenes, just waiting for her own opportunity. So she knows the game. She already knows what it is. And there isn't anything that like she hasn't seen at this point. So she's running the game because it's what she wants. It's not because she has to do it. I mean, I think if we're in a different time in a different place, Rock will be a CEO of, another, of a company. She's just very smart. She's very savvy and she's using all of the gifts that she's she possesses to get it yeah and, and to piggyback on that which is great what patina just said it, because howard he 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 knows he runs the streets because he really runs the streets he's got the the, the badge in the, you know to go with the gun you know so he's he's looking at it from a different perspective and also he comes from a different era even though the show takes place in the 90s he's coming from two generations before so as things are changing in terms of like culturally things are changing, he's experiencing that in real time as the audience is watching. But that's why he's such a brute. Uh, he's kind of barbaric and archaic in his way of thought purposefully because that's all he knows. But he runs the streets. And so he's, he's looking at Rock like, you know, she thinks she's gaining a foothold somewhere, this, that, and the other. But at the end of the day, you know, he could throw her in the slammer anytime he chooses. So it's that kind of cat and mouse, it, it, you know, because it's, it's it's about, not to be cliche, but who has the power, right? <laughs> like, and what is power, truly? I think a good way to wrap things up is to talk to the creator of this series of Power Book 3, Raising Canaan, Sasha Penn, who also happens to be the showrunner. He's been with the Power Series from the very beginning. So getting his insight into this show Really, really important. Here's what I had a chance to ask him. Sasha, I really loved the first couple of episodes of book three here. And one thing that I really noticed as I was watching it, you know, a mother always wants what's best for her son, right? But I feel like that is very much mutual between Raquel and Canon. So can you talk about, is, do you feel like it's more mutual with them than it would be in, say, a normal um, mother-son relationship? I mean, listen, I can't speak to every mother-son relationship. I can tell you, as it relates to these two characters, yes, they're, you know, they, when you're a single mom raising a kid on your own, you know, there's, there's, there's a natural connection there that's very, very intense, you know, and I, you know, I, I was, my parents were divorced, and, and so, yeah, you, you, as a kid, of course, you, this is your caregiver. This is the person you look to to keep you safe, to protect you. And as a parent, your kids are your world. I don't know that it's an extraordinary relationship in that way. And in fact, I think one of the things that works about the series is that their relationship feels real. It feels like it, it feels like it, it, it will resonate for parents and kids. I mean, I don't know if you have kids, but 
I do. And I can I tell do, you, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I mean, it, 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 this is, this is the journey we all take when you have kids and yeah. So I think it's th their relationship to me feels very grounded. And a lot of that has to do by the way, with the brilliant performances of these two actors. Sasha, one of the things I love is that you're taking us back to the early 90s, which is a time I remember quite well in this series. But how did you want to capture the vibe of the time and of the setting of the show as well, but not going too nostalgia heavy? Because I feel like you definitely don't do that. And I like that. Yeah. Well, thank you. First off, you know, I was in New York uh, right around this time. I was actually I was in I was uh, in another career. I was working at Harlem Hospital. I was I was helping to I was working at this community based health organization in Harlem. So I very much remember New York at that time. And, and it was this interesting moment, right, which is hip hop culture was really starting to emerge in, in a significant way. You know, you really felt it and you felt it in New York every day. And it was exciting, you know, and it was it was dynamic. And you felt like you were in, in some respects, like in, in the center of the in the center of the universe. And so that's what we really but there was also a grittiness to the city, by the way. It was not, there, there was a lot going on. And so that's what we've really tried to capture through the music and, because again, the music is a very visceral thing. You know, it's like you hear these songs and it brings you right back, or at least it does me. I was also conscious of the nineties, obviously. So it brings you right back as do the hairstyles and the clothes and all the rest of that. All of that stuff, you know, that stuff is really a character in the series to your point, James, like that, that, that it really, it's, it's so critical to the story we're telling. Because keep in mind also, this is pre-cell phones, right? Which, I mean, Rock has a cell phone, but only like, you know, only like five people had cell phones, right? And so that's also, by the way, as a writer, that's the best. Because when you, cell phones, cell phones change the game in writing, you know? And it was that easy to, when it became that easy to make a phone call, all of a sudden, all these plot twists that we've been working for the last hundred years went out the window. So not having cell phones is also a huge change, you know, or difference. Anyway, yeah, so the period of it all is really, really important. And, to your, and again, to your point, like, we do straddle that line, trying not to make it feel too nostalgic or corny, you know, just making it feel organic and real. You brought up Goodfellas earlier, Sasha, and I think that, that that's a really good example because what we have is, in, in this show in particular, is we have a queen pin on one side, and a kingpin on the other. And I love that you have those like uneasy meetings between the two of them. So talk about crafting those scenes and how it really drives that part of the story going forward. Because I thought that was, especially in the first episode, that was really fun. Yeah, I mean, listen, again, I give all the credit to the actors, you know? I mean, it's, it's you have Patina Miller and Joey Badass going toe to toe. You know, the, the scenes as they existed on the page were good. You know, I think what those actors did with those scenes made them great, you know? But yeah, I mean, I think, the best when we're talking about Goodfellas or The Godfather or any or power, any sort of great crime thriller, Heat, for example, like, you know, you think of that iconic scene in Heat with De Niro and Pacino, you know, first time on screen together going toward, you know, like that's what we aim for, right? Like it's very hard to even touch that, but that's what we aim for. And, and the only way that you can get there is if you have created characters that people frankly give a shit about. You know, the characters that that like you're on, you're you're with them, you understand them, you understand their motivations, you understand the stakes for them. When you have those two, if you've done that successfully, it's like an amazing prize fight. Right. It's like it's like Mike Tyson going against Michael Spinks. Right. Which is like you have these two heavyweights going toe to toe and you don't know how it's going to turn out. Right. That's that's what we aim for. And when we can when we can get near that, you know, that's when we've won. 
And that's just one of the many great things about this Power Book 3 Raising Kanan series is that not only does it have that, like Sasha said, big fight feel, it has all of these deep character moments that get mixed in between. So it's not just about this power struggle, for lack of a better term, like Omar said, but it's also about these family aspects and these kids that are growing in to their own at the same time and the family dynamics that are involved there as well. There's so much to love about Power Book 3, Raising Canon. I think you'll really enjoy it. You can actually enjoy this series without having watched any of the other Power Series 2, by the way, so you, you shouldn't feel lost or anything if you just want to jump into Power Book 3, Raising Canon, which will be airing every Sunday, premiering this Sunday night on Stars. Again, thanks to the wonderful cast of Power Book 3, Raising Canon, and the creators as well for joining me to chat about the show this week. Up next, hey, let's get back into some comics. It's what we're reading on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is writer Eric Burnham, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. There's a lot of heart in these pages this week, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading, and I want to start with an earlier view of MOM Mother of Madness number one from Image Comics. Yep, that's the book written by Amelia Clark, also drawn by Isabel Richardson and Marguerite Bennett, writing this one as well, and Lila Leitz on the art. Now, this follows a woman named Maya, who's a single mother, with some really just crazy powers. I mean, not just one power, but a bunch of them rolled into one. Makes her very, very unique character, to say the least. And her personality is off the charts, like Deadpool level personality, too. She really had a hard life growing up, though. Her powers seemed to kind of come from one very bad day and something that happened in the aftermath of that. Now, she tries to make the best life for her son. She's navigating a job in one of the most toxically chauvinistic companies I've ever even seen on a page or or in real life ever. It's just like every bad thing rolled in to one place. And so she's got to deal with that. And she also has to deal with the fact that she can't control her powers just yet either. Now, she also seems to stumble upon, and this isn't a spoiler, by the way, she stumbles upon a human trafficking operation that kind of makes her realize that her powers might be her true destiny. And that is right there in the description of the book. So that's not a huge spoiler and I won't ruin anything that happens and what she finds out. But I will say this, it's definitely one of those, it's definitely kind of a be comfortable in your own skin type of story when it comes to Maya, right? I mean, there's chance that at some point in your life you felt different and you were shunned by that or, or for that, or you were, you know, criticized or just were just playing on, Panel picked on for that, right? And Maya's had to deal with that her entire life and continues to deal with that as an adult. And maybe you do too. And that kind of makes her a very relatable character. I mean, we don't have the powers that she does, but the way the way that she is seen by the world and how she reflects that into herself and her insecurities is a really interesting aspect of this story. Now, this book does break the fourth wall a lot. I mean, it's just one big fourth wall break, and they're very outward about it and not ashamed of it either. It's almost like the narration comes to life, right? And she jumps out of each scene to kind of tell you what's going on herself. It's almost like how in Birds of Prey and the Fabulous Emancipation of Harley Quinn, how we had Harley telling the story in the background, but it would be like if Harley stopped in the middle of a scene and told us what was going on. That's how it kind of what we got going on here. And the art's just as wild as the story is too, by the way. And each page kind of had you wondering what comes next, not just the end of this issue. Every freaking page made you have no idea 
what was going to be happening on the next one. And that is not something that's very common of any book. So, I mean, this is definitely a, a story that'll keep you on your toes. You'll definitely get a laugh or two. There, there's a lot of backstory in this issue, and it's very necessary to kind of give you an idea of who Maya is and how she got to where she is, not just mentally, but powers-wise, and who has her back and who doesn't. So it sets the stage for something that's going to be a really big story in this first arc, which is only three issues, by the way, and you get your hands on this one on July 21st. If you're looking for something really unique to add to your pull and a very unique character, then Emma, a mother of madness, number one, definitely fits that bill from Image Comics. Now here's something that's kind of like a comfy, it's like the comfy pair of shoes that you have or, or a nice, just warm, fuzzy blanket to curl up in. And I, I couldn't wait to read Canto 3, Lionhearted, number one, because that, that's what it is for me. David Boomer writing this one, of course, drew Zucker back on the art, Vittorio Astone on the colors, and and World Design doing the letters. Now, if you're familiar with the Canto story, you kind of know what's going on, but this book starts off with the search for the, search for the slavers. And it kind of takes a really interesting turn because it seems like the Shrouded Man is also looking for them too. And maybe a couple of minor spoilers during this review, so just a heads up on that. So it's almost like a race for a numbers game with Canto and Alora. Kind of feel like they need more to be able to win this battle against the Shrouded Man. And you know, why face the Shrouded Man unless you, unless you feel like you, you have the weapon... Now you need the numbers. So it's almost like a Lord of the Rings ask where you, if you're going to storm the gates, you better have the numbers to be able to do it, right? Except they're not trying to return anything. They're not trying to throw the ring into the fire. They're trying to win their ultimate freedom, for lack of a better term. They've freed themselves from the slavers. Now what's left is the Shrouded Man. And there's a little bit of revenge mixed up in there as well. But Falco and Rikta, Rikka, excuse me, have another plan. But it's a risky, risky plan, and I won't ruin what that is. So what we have here kind of is, you know, what's going to win out? Will loyalty win, or will kind of hubris lead to a very, what could be anyway, a very costly decision and something that, ha that could have huge ramifications on Kanto going forward? Because you see that, 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 that Kanto, for lack of a better way of putting it, Kanto's heart is still very heavy over the loss of his beloved, right? And the fact that he's still locked up in this battle with the Shrouded Man. And you know that Kanto wouldn't be looking forward to joining up with the slavers either, but it's almost like, hey, you do what you got to do in order to reach your ultimate goal, right? But this story never gets old for me. Neither does this art. Every time I read a Kanto book, I'm reminded of just how brilliant these characters are and the world that was built here from the beginning of the first issue. I'm just fully invested in what this ultimate conclusion is going to be, and I'm definitely on edge based on the last two pages of this book. So if you're already a Canto fan, make sure you're picking up Canto 3, Lionhearted number 1 from IDW, and make sure you're catching up on the story too, by the way, because this is a book you should have been reading from the beginning. Get the trades, get caught up, and read some of the other stories as well, because Canto is definitely a can't-miss story that you're going to want to check out. That's going to do for what we're reading. Up next, going to jump right into nerd news and some big news from the Walking Dead world. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Mark Paul Gossler from The Passage on Fox, and you're listening to 
the Down and Nerdy Podcast. The beginning of the end is near. It is time for nerd news. And I say this because there was some Walking Dead news this week. And the final season trilogy is going to begin on August the 22nd. We found that out when AMC released the final season trilogy trailer. Now, it is actually going to start a week early on AMC+. So if you're an AMC Plus subscriber, you can actually start watching on August the 15th. So maybe that's incentive for you. Maybe it's not. Now, if you look at this trailer, there was a lot of imagery from past seasons and things like that. You know, trying to give you the warm and fuzzies, if as warm and fuzzies you can get about Walking Dead, about stuff that you loved from past seasons. And then fast forward into what is going to be this upcoming season or the beginning of the end, as I like to call it. Now, the theme for this trailer definitely seemed to be togetherness and it seems like banded together not just against the walkers themselves and you know for survival but against the whisperers as well because it seems like there's a final battle coming there for sure now how that's going to turn out and who's going to end up aligning where i think is one of the interesting things to think about with this but i mean how hyped did you get when you actually saw this trailer i know that this isn't the be all end all of anything but i was actually kind of surprised that the trailer didn't have more views on YouTube than it did. The last time I checked it, now granted this was yesterday, was like, it was at like four or 5,000 views or something like that. Usually these huge trailers get like millions of views right off the bat. This one just didn't. I don't know if that's a sign that the hype is kind of died down for The Walking Dead or what's going on, but I'm not sure that that's the case. I'm just a little bit surprised. It's not like it wasn't released on social media and stuff too. And I'm not going to spend time adding up all the views and everything. I think the hype is real for this. I think the fans are really excited to find out how this is all going to end. But remember the final two parts of this final season aren't even airing until 2022. So the finality isn't quite there yet. And that might have a little something to do with it, but the beginning of the end is certainly beginning. The other piece of walking dead news that happened this week is AMC and Image Comics and Skybound announced that the Walking Dead Universe art book is going to be coming on September 29th. That's where it starts at comic book shops a week later at wherever books are sold. And it's going to be artist Brian Rude. And this is actually the first time, if you look at the wrapped cover arts, the first time the characters from all three shows, that means The Walking Dead, Fear the Walking Dead, and The Walking Dead World Beyond, are all depicted on one piece of art on this wraparound cover. Now, on the inside... You can have 50 character renditions from the shows and also character renditions of the walkers as well. This feels like one of those things that's perfectly timed out to be released at this particular point. And if you're a fan, like a diehard fan, this is one of those things you kind of have to have, don't you? This is one of those things, too, that I think would look really great on the shelf, especially if you if you love art books anyway. And one of those things that you would definitely want to get signed now the conventions have started back up, if you're ever in a, in, in a fortunate position to get Brian Rude to sign this. Or, you know, if you could meet cast members and get them each to sign, you know, the pages that they're on or something like that, like that I think that would be really cool. That, as a collector for me, would be something I would really, really love to do because I've got a DC encyclopedia and a Marvel encyclopedia at home, and I actually get artists to sign those things and stuff like that when I'm not busy working these conventions. I actually like to, you know, try and be a fan on occasion. So I'll get them to sign pages of their art and things like that. And I'll get writers to sign it as well. So I think this is one of those things that would be really cool to have in your Walking Dead collection. More trailers that came out this week. Titans Season 3 full trailer was released by HBO Max. Of course, that series begins 
on August the 12th, and we get a much better idea of what's going on here. Batman retires. That's the big news of this trailer is that Bruce Wayne is retiring, and he tries to pass the mantle to Dick Grayson, but it looks like Jason Todd Red Hood has other plans, and the Red Hood is going to try and rule over Gotham. And that seems to be a point of contention here because you see, of course, Red Hood battling a couple of the Titans in this trailer, right? And then you see Barbara Gordon, who makes her a pretty big appearance in this trailer, and she's hunting down Red Hood. So it looks like a lot of this season is going to be revolving around Red Hood. Not necessarily Scarecrow, although Scarecrow seems to be like a consultant now for the GCPD. And that's going to be interesting, but it also feels like there's some interesting tension between Barbara and Dick, doesn't there? If you've seen the trailer, I'm really interested to see how that's going to play out because it seems like their relationship's a little uneasy in this trailer. So I'm interested to see what kind of backstory we're going to get on that. But I mean, there's a ton of action in this as well. I love the Connor Kent Red Hood scene in this trailer. I think that that's really, really interesting. And just like Starfire says, you know, where I'm from, when you mess with family, you mess with all of us. So the Titans going to band together against Red Hood and whatever else they might be facing. This season looks insane in this trailer, doesn't it? I can't wait to see where this thing is going. Another interesting trailer that came out this week was from Netflix for a series called Hit and Run. And it's basically another one of these revenge action style thrillers that we've got going on where a man's wife is run down for what seems like, to him at least, anyway, no reason in an accident in Tel Aviv. And as he goes to kind of search for her killers in the United States, of course, that's where the killers fled to, he starts to sort of find out that, you know, maybe there are some truths that were kept from him by his wife and trying to understand what's going on there. And But by the way, he's investigating this with an ex-lover, which I think is a very interesting twist of this whole story. And it stars Lior Raz, who you might be familiar with from the next Netflix series, Fauda, or maybe maybe not. Or he was also in Six Underground, too, by the way. And it just looks like one of those, you know, man with a particular set of skills type of series. And to me, it's if you're if this genre is in your wheelhouse, then this seems like something that you're definitely going to want to check out. It's in my wheelhouse, so I'm interested in seeing what's going on here. I'm in it for the action and to see just how twisty this story is going to be. So, you know, am I looking for a hugely deep story here? No, I'm just looking, I'm just in it for the action and whatever crazy twists might be coming. And August 6th is the day that you could see Hit and Run on Netflix. So I just think it's going to be a fun, intense story and, and, and just a fun watch. So I'm, that's why I'm looking forward to it. Speaking of fun, we have the new Pixar movie that has been revealed by Disney. It's going to be called Turning Red. And it's basically, if you, when you watch the trailer, it follows a, a little girl named Miley. I said little girl. It's a teenager. But to me, you know, little girl, 13 is little, okay? And when she gets too excited, she turns into a giant red panda. Now, Miley is a very excitable young lady, so this kind of seems to happen a lot. And did I mention she's got a little bit of a helicopter parent who's going to be played by Sandra Oh. So, you know, she has to deal with, you know, being at school, being a teenager and her mom, like helicoptering outside of the window of her school and all of her classmates finding out nightmare. If you're a kid, right? Imagine if that happened to you while you were in school. I don't think you'd be too thrilled. So, and, and by the way, Miley actually voiced by a newcomer, Rosalie Chiang, 
So, I mean, again, this is another one that just looks looks fun, looks different. And, you know, how, worth, how is Miley going to deal and, and her mom going to deal with the fact? Because her mom sees her turn into this thing, right? So it's going to be interesting to see exactly how this plays out and how fun this is going to be and how deep the story is going to be because there's a lot of depth to Pixar movies, right? It's not just about a fun story. It's not just about these funny moments. There's always a message in a Pixar movie, and I'm very curious to see what the message is going to be in this one. And it just happens to have an Academy winning award-winning director in Dome Shi. So that doesn't hurt your cause either. And you could see this starting March the 11th. Now, remember, the last couple of Pixar movies haven't been in theaters. So it'll be interesting to see if this one is in theaters or not. Wasn't necessarily specified, but I'm guessing that this thing is probably in theaters. Really quickly, I want to look at the Emmy nominations. Normally, I don't do this, but I think there was some interesting news to come out of this. And namely the fact that The Boys, The Mandalorian, WandaVision, and Cobra Kai, by the way, all got nominations for in big categories. I mean, you've got The Boys, Mandalorian being nominated in Best Drama category. You've got WandaVision in the Best Limited Series, Miniseries category. And Cobra Kai, for some reason, in comedy. I mean, yeah, it's funny, but I don't understand how you could look at Cobra Kai and classify it as a comedy. Am I wrong? It just seems a little odd, but that's not the oddest thing. That happened. Congratulations to them, by the way. I'd love to see the Mandalorian or the boys win in the best drama category, but I, I just don't see it happening. I think the nominations are a good step in the right direction, but I don't know. I actually think that one division has a good chance in a few categories. Actually, I mean, you could definitely see Elizabeth Olsen take one home. Paul Bettany, you could see him take one home as well. You could see the show winning in that category too, by the way. So I'm, I'm curious to see... If, the, if this show has a chance. But the most baffling thing was the guest star nomination for Don Cheadle for The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Not because I don't like Don Cheadle, by the way, but he was literally in the show for 90-plus seconds and gets nominated. And first of all, I you know, there's been a lot of reaction to this on social media, myself included, and... Let's just get thing one, one thing clear. It's not Don Cheadle's fault that he got nominated for this. Okay, You can be mad at Don Cheadle for this. Obviously, he's going to accept the nomination. Why wouldn't you? It's, it's weird. He doesn't get it either. But yet, here we are. And will he win it? Probably not. But still, it's, it's a little weird that he was nominated for 98 seconds, especially when the biggest smack in the face, if you want to get upset about something, and that's the fact that Carl Lumbly who was fantastic in a guest role in The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Maybe one of the best things about that show was his storyline, right, in and his, and his portrayal, and doesn't get it over Don Cheadle. That's the thing that I think that I would be upset about, and I think that that's a legit, legitimate gripe from fans is that, okay, so the Emmys clearly went to nominate the name, not the better performance, because... You can't tell me that in 90-plus seconds Don Cheadle was better than Carl Lumley in that, in, that, in that series. You can't. It's just not possible. And I, and I say this to somebody who loves Don Cheadle. I'm a big fan of almost anything he's been in in his career. But over Carl Lumley in this particular case, I think that's kind of a smack in the face. And I don't know what the Emmys, the nomination folks, were watching. You do have to watch these shows to vote on this kind of stuff, right, and put these nominations up? I'm Because I'm curious at this point. 
Really quickly, there was actually a couple pieces of news on something's killing the children as well. Of course, you know the Boom Studios comic from James Tynan and Werther Della Edera. So, and I'm sure I butchered your name, Werther. I apologize for that. But this series, this book is actually going to be adapted by Netflix. It's actually going to be co-written and produced by Trevor Macy and Mike Flanagan, who worked on The House of The Haunting of Hill House and Dr. Sleep. So, I mean, you get a legit team behind this thing and you get to tell Erica Slaughter's story a little bit more, right? And find out why these, it'll be interesting to see exactly how closely they adapt it to the comic, right? Because, you know, kids go missing, some of them come back. And of course, the stories they tell when they come back are less than thrilling or less than rosy. You know, it's it's kind of terrifying, so now we and I'm not going to spoil anything beyond that. I'm not going to I'm not going to just dive into all the issues of this of this comic because I don't want to ruin it for you from when the series is coming out. But this is one of those things that could really be a hit for Netflix. It, you know, the, there are certain comic adaptations where you look at it and you go, that makes perfect sense for where it is. Netflix is the perfect home for an adaptation of something is killing the children based on what I've seen from Netflix so far. I wouldn't want to see this done anywhere else. So if anything, I think this adaptation is in really good hands and I'm really looking forward to seeing what they do with it. We also find out the same week, by the way, oh, that was courtesy of the Hollywood Reporter that first broke that news, but Boom Studios also announced this week that there's going to be a spinoff comic from Something is Killed, Killing the Children called House of Slaughter. And this is going to be a little bit of a prequel too, by the way. I'll get to that in a second. We've got the same team involved in this that created Something is Killing the Children, but we're also going to add co-writer Tate Bromball and Chris Sheehan on art as well, joining the original creative team. So, you know, all hands on deck for this one. And this is actually going to tell Aaron Slaughter's story before the events of this story. Of course, you know, he's Erica's handler, so we'll find out exactly how, you know, you know this monster killer has kind of got his start. And the story actually follows the training in the House of Slaughter and the fact that he falls for a boy who will become his competitor. Read into that what you will. The art already looks stunning. If you see the page, if you've seen the pages that were already released and the cover art is absolutely amazing. Gonna have to wait until October for this one. No release date yet, by the way, for the Netflix adaptation, but you know I'm going to be keeping an eye on that. And once I know, you'll know. And that's the bottom line for that. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to my amazing guests this week, Sarah Levy and Tim Rozon. Make sure you're watching Surreal Estate on Sci-Fi every Friday. And then how about Power Book 3, Raising Canaan, the amazing cast and creators, creators of that series. That one starts on Sunday on Stars, already renewed for a second season, too, by the way. So feel free, feel free to definitely get in this one because it's going to be sticking around. Follow along with us on social media at Down and Nerdy 757 on Twitter and Instagram and at Down and Nerdy on Facebook. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow along on our website as well, downandnerdypodcast.com. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds. 
Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.